Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So it's food week here. Day two of food week. If you haven't heard it yet, Monday's show was awesome. I talked to Caitlin Kelleher, the executive producer over at America's Test Kitchen. She runs both TV and podcasts over there. So we had an awesome talk about uh, how they're evolving and shooting at home because of coronavirus. And today is going to be all about ice cream. My guests today are Brian Smith and Jackie Cuscuna. They're a husband and wife team that founded Ample Hills Creamery, which is a Brooklyn-based ice cream brand. They were founded 10 years ago in Brooklyn, and uh, they grew very, very quickly. They ended up with 16 locations between New York, New Jersey. They had locations in Florida. They used to have a location in Los Angeles as well. And their ice cream, it was all handmade. It was using some of the best ingredients and really inventive flavor combinations. And they got on a lot of people's radar very quickly. Bob Iger was an early champion of them, the uh, former CEO of Disney, and uh, really helped introduce them to a much bigger audience than they may have had uh, just in Brooklyn. I found out about them because of their shop down in Florida at Walt Disney World. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Oprah Winfrey was another fan of theirs. She named Ample Hills one of her favorite things. But just as quickly as they rose to success, it kind of all came crashing down earlier this year for them. They declared bankruptcy in March, right before coronavirus shut down, and then uh, have spent the last several months negotiating the terms of that bankruptcy and figuring out a path forward. And it ended up that the path forward was having a manufacturing company buy this business for a million dollars. And Jackie and Brian were not part of the deal. So they had built this brand together and just poured their hearts and their souls into it and really made it a beautiful, popular, awesome thing. And then it it all kind of fell apart. So you might be wondering, why am I talking to ice cream people on a podcast about entertainment and media? And a piece of it, I think, is just Brian's background He actually was a screenwriter and an audio producer prior to forming Ample Hills, and he'll talk about that whole experience. So I think it's kind of interesting just because for a lot of the people that I've had on this podcast, entertainment is is what's in their blood. And especially for those of us that have been out of work during this time, we all miss it. We all want to get back out on set. And that's been a lot of the types of conversations on this show. But I think if we're all being honest with ourselves, there may be a piece, I know certainly for me, there's a piece of me that has contemplated a a slower pace of life at times. And I know I've thought, maybe I'll open a, a, you know, a fun little ice cream shop or, you know, a little coffee shop that can be the neighborhood hangout. Like these thoughts certainly have, have crossed my mind. I don't know if they have for you guys or not, but it was interesting to me just to hear Brian come from the entertainment industry and actually pursue that dream of going on and and opening an ice cream shop. So just that, uh, that journey was interesting to me. But I think you'll find in this interview, too, creativity is is pretty universal. And whether your creativity is expressed through writing a screenplay or through framing a beautiful shot or pacing a perfect edit or creating a great ice cream flavor, those are all creative expressions. And it's interesting just sort of Brian having his feet in both those worlds, right, of knowing the screenwriting industry and the entertainment side And then taking that knowledge that just became ingrained in him over the course of his career and shifting that to an amazing ice cream business. And it's funny because I I didn't know anything about either of them going into their shops, but there was something that just resonated with me on a deep level that I just connected to instantly and sort of recognized, oh, okay, they're doing a thing that I like. And so it's been tough to sort of see their struggles over the last couple of months and knowing that the Ample Hills that I love is on a different trajectory now. As I mentioned, I first got introduced to them at Walt Disney World down in Florida. They had a shop at Disney's Boardwalk, which is one of the hotels there. And it was just some of the best ice cream I had ever tasted. And as I learned more about them, realized they were this Brooklyn-based brand. And my wife is from Long Island. And so when we would go to New York to visit family, we often ended up making a stop at Ample Hills. And it became a thing my kids looked forward to and loved. And uh, it was the same at Walt Disney World. I don't think there's been a trip that's gone by in the last four years where I didn't go to Ample Hills at least once on the vacation. And if we're staying right at the boardwalk, 
it could be four or five times in the course of four or five days <laughs> that we were at Ample Hills. So I love their ice cream. And part of their story, too, they're now sharing in a new podcast. It's called As the Ice Cream Churns. And if you're interested in what you hear today, I definitely recommend you checking out their podcast and just hearing the whole story. We spend a little under an hour today just sort of talking about the highs and lows of their business, but also the creative process and Brian's background in screenwriting and things like that. But uh, if you want a deep dive into sort of the nitty gritty of starting an ice cream business and then the challenges that came once uh, once that happened, I recommend checking out their podcast as well. Again, it's called As the Ice Cream Churns and it's on all major podcast platforms. So it's an ice cream show today, but uh, it's a lot of other things too. Creativity, entertainment, media, Bob Iger, Steven Spielberg. You're going to hear it all. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is, my interview with Brian Smith and Jackie Cuscuna. I ask everybody uh, the same question to get started, and that is just sort of how this quarantine has been. And I feel like for you guys, it's uh, there's a whole added challenge on top of it. But uh, I'll leave it open-ended, I guess. How have the last uh, five or six months been treating you? That's a loaded question. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, you know, we we filed for bankruptcy on the day the city shut down wow. in March. So it was a really uh, doubly, triply, quadruply intense time. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, we hadn't, we didn't file for bankruptcy because of coronavirus, but the four or five months of coronavirus was um, for us through July anyway, was every minute of it was uh, about the bankruptcy of Ample Hills and us trying to get the company uh, sort of through the bankruptcy and out the other side, um, which we had all the confidence of in the world when we entered into bankruptcy. But um, by the time uh, the coronavirus had sort of taken over and taken hold, we just started to see those chances diminishing more and more. But, you know, I think, you know, we spent most of that time um, trying to find ways to keep Ample Hill's Relevant. Yeah. 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 Surviving in the city at that time, which was so intense and so, um, yeah. so devastating. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it's so many problems kind of compounded at once of, you know, obviously the bankruptcy must have been front and center, but then you're living in sort of the, the hottest spot for, for coronavirus at the time in, in New York City. And then I, I just, you know, not having the revenue of, you know, having to have all the shops closed during that time, like, that that must have been daunting in and of itself just trying to think about you know how do you how do you claw out of this if the main source of revenue is completely shut down right yeah 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 and we did uh, i mean you know we had entered into bankruptcy with you know just enough money really to to file but you know without any revenue uh, coming in you know we just had to make sure there was no cost going out right. it meant a total and complete shutdown i mean there weren't any employees there you know there really you know no rent was being paid you know we managed to sort of get by in the days and the weeks that followed and then we you know we started up in may on the weekend selling you know, prepackaged pints out of, uh, you know, one or two of the shops uh, on certain weekend days. We got our kids there. Yeah, it was just the four of us, um, yeah. me, Nona, and Cleo. And that was really successful. I mean, we sold a lot of ice cream, five, $6,000 a day, um, just selling prepackaged ice cream. So that was nice to see that it was still on the minds of people. Uh, at that time. Yeah, I guess that's something that just, it, it's it struck me sort of watching this from a distance and sort of knowing my own experience with your brand of just sort of how passionate everybody is about Ample Hills, right? Like, did that, it sounds like you got that feeling, especially sort of during this time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think also we, we felt compelled, and I think Jackie did a lot of this, is to really, uh, like we said, try to keep things relevant when the shops were all closed. And so, I mean, that was two principal things that we did, uh, both of which she spearheaded, one that I was involved in, which was that every week we would make a new flavor of ice cream at home, uh, that we would do a live Instagram feed, basically kind of a cooking show where we'd make some new flavor that we'd never made before. 
and uh, communicate with fans and post those things. That's right. That was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. Uh, was, and it was something to do, I think, mean, during quarantine that was upbeat and positive. The other piece was, was going out to the hospitals, and I was taking, I, I think we donated around 10,000, almost 10,000 pints of yeah. ice cream to the hospitals. And I, that was just me. Uh, and occasionally I, I'd get a, you know, an employee to come and help me in the freezer because it was a little bit harrowing. It's like this massive freezer and I'd be in there by myself and Brian would be home with the kids. And um, I was just trying to get, uh, you know, pints together to bring over to NYU or Sloan Kettering, whichever hospital was requesting some joy. And that honestly was just almost a, a feeling of just feeling helpless you know, that we couldn't be open to bring our usual ample hills joy to people <laughs> that like, how can I do this? How, what can we do to to help the city that I love so much heal in some small, tiny way? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it was a trying time for everybody. And I, I can only imagine sort of having all the extra stress and anguish just on top of what all of us were dealing with of quarantining and homeschooling and, you know, all of that yeah. to, to add, you know, the business factors into it. It just, you know, hats off to you guys. That's a, that's a challenge to, to go through. Um, I, I've really been enjoying your podcast and sort of listening to the ups and the downs uh, of, of the business. And, you know, I, I guess I want to sort of go back, Brian, I was struck just sort of by your background and, and sort of your history prior to Ample Hills that you actually are, you come from the entertainment industry and, you know, yeah. or a screenwriter and things. Talk to me just sort of about what your life was like before you went into ice cream. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Ample Hill started when I was 40. In many respects, it feels like it was a, a midlife crisis of, you know, not not getting the uh, sports car, but instead right. getting the, the local ice cream shop. But, I mean, before that, I had been um, a couple of things. I'd been a screenwriter. I also had produced and directed um, countless radio plays and audio books. I was really obsessed as a kid with old-time radio shows, you know, The Shadow and Inner Sanctum and, and CBS Radio Workshop and Mercury Theater on the Air and all those good things. And so, uh, you know, for a time I was producing radio dramas for NPR and for Sirius Satellite Radio, uh, WNYC in New York, and then produced and directed audio books. This was all before podcasts and, yeah. uh, and allowed for a model to really make it potentially work economically. But then I uh, and also uh, got involved in, in screenwriting and, and wrote some pretty bad monster movies uh, for TV and uh, <laughs> things like Alien Express with aliens on a runaway train and Bluebird um, Terror. About giant killer birds that uh, have flu, avian flu. I guess if they don't eat you, then they give you the avian flu. I don't know. It was it was a little a bit of a stretch, but um, yeah, I mean it was it was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed uh, you know that process. You know, you don't really make a, a living writing a TV movie, you know, once a year yeah. for cable TV, and so. You know, the goal was to try to move from that world, you know, obviously to a next step writing for a TV show or, or getting, a, you know, uh, a bigger movie production going. And while I had three films that got made, it was never it never quite got to that level. And I, I just uh, I found that I was making ice cream often at home as a creative outlet to the screenwriting, which was kind of ironic and strange since yeah. screenwriting was creative in and of itself. But I just think at the end of the day, I was a better ice cream maker uh, than I was a screenwriter. Though at this point, uh, having lost it all with Ample Hills, I've definitely thought about going back to that <laughs> that time and seeing if I could come up with some new stories to tell. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would fault that more on, on maybe the business piece of it and not the ice cream making. I mean, I think, you know, you're definitely talented <laughs> yeah. at making the, the flavors and stuff. But um, yeah. I, I wonder sort of, Looking at those two different worlds, um, you know, screenwriting and, and you know, producing radio dramas and things and ice cream making, like, what does that Venn diagram look like for you? What did, yeah. how did those influence each other? Oh, I think it's funny because at the time I, I you know, it didn't, it just seemed like a complete uh, 180. But uh, in retrospect, I think they're wholly and completely inter interlinked and, and probably a good piece of, um, 
of you know the success we had is in the storytelling around the flavors of ice cream, the storytelling in terms of the narrative of, of how ice cream gets made and, and, and what we were doing at the beginning in terms of inviting people into that narrative of, of what we were doing and why. Uh, I mean, ice cream at the end of the day is just milk, cream, sugar, and eggs and some flavor. But if you're selling people milk, cream, sugar, eggs, and flavoring, I mean, everybody's doing that. But if you're selling them a connection to childhood, a time machine to the past and to when they saw things through, you know, the eyes of a child and wonder and awe. Like if you can connect something uh, greater, and I, I think that focus on storytelling and screenwriting and, and, and all those different media that I had been doing definitely played uh, an impact in how uh, we were thinking about Ample Hills and telling that story. And also then just down to the very uh, nitty gritty of coming up with flavors of ice cream. I mean, you know, when you come up with a new monster movie, you're, you know, you're borrowing the head of the monster from that movie mm. with the tail from the monster from that movie. Right. You know, you're piecing it together. You're giving it your own uh, spin, your own uh, creative take. And when you're making a flavor of ice cream, I mean, there's very few wholly and completely original things. I mean, people have been making ice cream for hundreds of years, but, <laughs> you know, but you're taking um, the mix in from this flavor, the base from that flavor, you're adding your own little twist on it. It's all the same kind of creative juices, the same creative work that goes into writing a, a movie and, and making an ice cream flavor, honestly. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because on the surface, I don't see those worlds connecting, but as you're talking about it, like I completely agree. And even, I, you know, I don't think I'm alone in this, of this quarantine period, you know, I've been cooking a lot more and sort of exploring that and, you know, baking sourdough bread and uh, homemade tortillas, homemade pastas, yeah. and just sort of realizing like, oh, I can do this and this is fun and, and rewarding. And as you say, it, it yeah. exercises that part of your brain in a way that you don't expect. Totally. Um, you talked about story a lot. And sort of the other thing that really strikes me about Ample Hills is sort of a sense of place. Uh, you know, the Vanderbilt shop was the one that, that we went to the most in New York, I think. And it just, it has such such character. And, and you know, Jackie, you talked, you guys wrote a cookbook with a lot of the Ample Hills recipes. And Jackie, in your piece of the book, you talked about sort of the ice cream shops of your youth and wanting to sort of recreate that mm -hmm. feeling. I guess, talk to me about sort of, what what was the goal when when you opened that first shop? What were you what were you trying to to convey? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I grew up in Queens, and you know, my home ice cream place was Eddie's, which was um, this old timey ice cream shop that um, I would go with my grandmother, and I'd go with my girlfriends, and you know, whatever boyfriends I had. It played such a role in my life. We didn't have that in Brooklyn at the time. I didn't feel like as a family there was a place that we could go to you know, the four of us to pass the time and get ice cream. And, and so the goal with, with Ample Hills Vanderbilt was to make it that place, that, that third place that you could pass the time and feel happy, you know, being in with your kids while your kids are playing in like the play kitchen in the back of the space and you're you know, chatting with a friend. And when we first opened that space, it started out with lots of families during the daytime. And then we quickly realized at nighttime, it became a date spot and it kind of, was that community gathering spot that that we had hoped for in our community, which was um, which is beautiful. Which I'm so glad that we <laughs> we went with that corner to be the first location of the Ample Hills uh, experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember going in there. You know, with my my kids are seven and four, and just it's one of the few places when we'd visit New York where we just kind of felt like they could roam free. <laughs> like we'd be up at the counter ordering and they'd be back in the kitchen, you know, the toy kitchen playing around. And it just, yeah, it, it, it had a, it had a home vibe to it, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 No, I'm glad that you said that. That makes, that brings me joy. <laughs> <laughs> Bittersweet joy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sad joy. Nice. <laughs> So I wonder, like, Brian, you talked about, you know, this hobby of, of making ice cream and experimenting with flavors and stuff like the decision to make that a full time business. How did you how did you prepare for it? Like for me, just thinking about the logistics of like 
you know, health codes and like, how am I going to order, you know, hundreds of gallons of milk or like whatever it is, like right. that to me is where it gets daunting. Like, how did you prepare for the business piece of this and, and really committing to it? Yeah, none of that stuff is fun. I mean, that's <laughs> finding out about health permits and things like that. No, that, that's not the fun part. Um, I, you know, I did a lot of the research that I could do on uh, the Internet and, you know, trying to find what I could find. That was some of it. Um, I also, you know, took a I took a class, you know, with a private like ice cream instructor guy that had had an ice cream shop. And he had um, uh, taught me some of the stuff. I took my, you know, our, our, our son, who at the time was six months old, and we went around to every ice cream shop in the tri-state area, wow. really. I mean, like into Connecticut and Jersey and uh, Staten Island and uh, Queens, everywhere. And we would pick a different ice cream shop each day. And, you know, I'd count customers and look at the flavors. I'd see what things that they did well, things that I didn't think they were doing well. And so that was a, a good bit of the research. I mean, one funny anecdote about not getting some of the research done was, you know, the I was making ice cream on hand-cranked ice cream makers, right, with rock salt and ice. And um, that was how, you know, every one of the Ample Hills flavors that we opened with was are indeed. I mean, wow. every one of them was on a hand-cranked ice cream maker. I didn't make ice cream on a commercial ice cream maker until six days before we opened when it arrived from the manufacturer. I mean, <laughs> wow. it had an instruction booklet. I mean, it wasn't really that complicated. You know, you had to pour in the mix into the top and wait 12 minutes. But, you know, it was still, it was, a, it was I had those six days. I mean, yeah. it was a learning process. But it was taking the recipes for two quarts and uh, increasing them to 24 quarts. Oh, I, I know one of the things I did, which, you know, a lot of people uh, in the ice cream world do, is there's a one-week-long ice cream course at Penn State. Penn State is, you know, the, one of the oldest dairy schools in the country, if not the oldest. And they have their own creamery uh, and their own dairy farm. And they hold a week-long ice cream chemistry short course huh. for anybody that wants to sign up for it in January every year. And, you know, industry players like Unilever, and, uh, Nestle, they send, you know, representatives there. But small mom-and-pop shop people go there and people wannabes that go, go there and get contacts. And so Ben and Jerry's, you know, famously, you know, they, they took uh, the course. And uh, so... It was one of the things that I had read in an article somewhere, and so I, I took that class, and that's a, a good resource. Yeah, that, that, that's wild. I, one thing that I learned, and I, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I had heard a thing like on our local NPR at one point, I think, that most ice cream shops, they handle kind of the mix-ins. They'll put the cookie dough or you know the chocolate chips or whatever in, but they're usually buying a commercial ice cream base. Is that true? Yeah. You that's, guys did, yeah. That, right? That's you, absolutely you, true. Yeah, you you made them from scratch, but like majority of the ice cream shops that you go to, and you say, "Oh man, this is like really good homemade ice cream." Like most of the time, they're just they're buying it from somebody else and and adding in a couple of flavors, right? Yeah, most of the time they're buying the mix from somebody else, and then they're also buying the mix ins from somebody else. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, cookie dough, for example, there's one or two main manufacturers in the U.S. of cookie dough nuggets, you yeah. know, uh, and everybody buys the same cookie dough nuggets. And so you get this homogeneity between cookie dough ice creams out there. You know, so if you make your own cookie dough from scratch, that's a big deal. And then also the, the ice cream base itself if you're buying the same base that other people are buying, then you end up with the ice cream itself more or less tasting the same. And, you know, you can add some flavoring to the base to, you know, um, different kinds of vanillas or chocolates or whatever you want. But yeah, it, it's not, it's not really crafting the ice cream from, from scratch and getting in there and doing something creative. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think as creative. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. So, you know, you, you guys talk in the podcast about sort of that opening week and uh, selling out of ice cream and, and literally having to shut the shop down and, and kind of retool after a couple of days. Like, I just wonder, you know, you talk about you know gearing up six days before opening and sort of making ice cream the first time on a, on a commercial ice cream machine and then going to, you know, that much of a reception. Like, 
I guess just how did that how did that affect how you viewed the business and you know what you thought sort of the prospects were for it? Yeah, I mean, we had no idea. We had absolutely no idea if people were going to show up. So it was kind of like, all right, well, let's get it all together and make all the ice cream, have it ready, and you know, open the doors and see what happens, and hopefully people will come. And then, you know, I think into probably into the end of day one, maybe day two, we we realized that we were at a trajectory of running out of ice cream pretty quickly because Brian really was the only person making every single last tub of ice cream at the time. Yeah, I mean, we had really prepared for that. And and when I mentioned that I'd gone around and counted customers at other shops, I had done the math. I mean, I didn't have a business background, obviously. I was a screenwriter. But the business that that I'd figured out was, okay, I knew what our rent was. I knew what our uh, electric was. I knew what the cost of the labor was. And I knew this is how many scoops of ice cream I have to sell or to pay that. And I'd counted customers at other shops and I figured, okay, I can get to that number of customers, I think. And that's what we planned for. And so in retrospect, we had really prepared for what we considered to be the, you know, that, that break even point of, okay, we're not going out of business amount of ice cream. And it was just, I don't know, it was probably five to tenfold that from day one. And so we just, we'd never prepared for that concept of success. It was a very rocky, very rocky start. Yeah. Well, you know, it it took off from there. And, you know, one of the things that I'm fascinated with, too, and part of the reason I thought you guys were a good fit for this show is just sort of, you know, how you ended up overlapping with kind of these these titans of Hollywood, <laughs> Bob Iger kind of being the first one of those. But, you know, Oprah and Steven Spielberg and others like talk to me a little bit about just sort of those relationships and sort of how how you got on on these people's radar. Boy, how did how did that first happen? Uh, I think it happened when we started shipping ice cream. Oh, that's right. right? Yeah. So we were uh, shipping ice cream out of our, our Gowana shop, which happened in 2014. And one of the very first people to order ice cream, I mean, just I think in the first two or three days, was Bob Iger. Wow. And, you know, we had just published our cookbook. So we sent him a copy of our cookbook. We sent him the ice cream. And um, we just thought, wow, that's really cool. And then about three days after he got the ice cream, he uh, emailed me out of out of the blue. And it was just, um, I, I mean, it really was one of those moments in time where there's a real before and after um, because he just said, you know, hey, if there's anything at all I can do to help, let me know. I love your, you know, I love your ice cream. I love your stories. Maybe Ample Hills at Disney, Bob, you know. Yeah. And it was, we sat there for about a half an hour uh, wondering if it was really him, whether somebody was playing a joke on us. <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I, you know, having been a screenwriter, obviously, I also had grown up in South Florida and went to Disney, you know, two or three times a year as a kid. And, you know, nobody does storytelling at, at the company level better than Disney does. Sure. I mean, every single facet of everything they do is story. I mean, from standing in line for a ride to, um, you know, just to, to the movies and TV shows, everything is a story. And I think some of that had clearly seeped into the way we thought about Ample Hills. Bob saw that. And, you know, he then started to introduce the ice cream to to friends. I mean, that was one of the biggest ways in which he he helped. I mean, he was a mentor in in many ways and helping us think through and codify the things that we were doing well and, and, and how to replicate them and keep them authentic as we grew. But he also introduced the ice cream to Oprah, for example. He sent the ice cream to Oprah, and she loved it, and then called up the shop one day uh, and, uh, you know, asked to talk to us and, uh, you know, uh, was just raving about the ooey-gooey butter cake and uh, salted caramel and had us come to her uh, magazine's 15th anniversary, scoop ice cream alongside her. 
and that was yeah. Uh, and she talked for a good five minutes yeah. about the ice yeah. cream and her experience with it. It was pretty right. amazing. Right. She wanted to take a bath in the ooey gooey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's something really lewd. I yeah. Remember. It was, I was true. like, oh wow. Okay. I wish I'd had that uh, recorded. I know. That That's was cool. That would have been uh, that would have been good. But um, you know, and and then Bob would send ice cream to um, you know his friends as Christmas presents and uh, things like that. Just a, a whole bunch of people ended up getting the ice cream, and you know Jimmy Kimmel um, became a, a fan and and and, uh, and uh, would order ice cream, and we ended up doing a, a flavor of ice cream for the Jimmy Kimmel show uh, last fall, actually, when he visited and came to Brooklyn. And then uh, Spielberg, of course, J.J. Yes. Abrams. And we ended up, you know, I think that from the media and the, the, the storytelling angle, what was really exciting was that we were able to license these properties from Disney, yep. um, including, um, you know, most exciting from my point of view was Star Wars, because, you know, I, I had been such a, a sci-fi geek and, and wanting to write those kind of movies. And when episode seven, you know, Star Wars came out, directed by J.J. Abrams, we were able to make uh, two Star Wars flavors of ice cream, the light side and the dark side, and got to fly out to L.A. for uh, some of the premiere parties and met J.J. Abrams and, you know, talked to him about ice cream and screenwriting. And so it was, it was really all downhill from that point on <laughs> for, for me. Yeah. It was well, um, I just wonder, too, like thinking about, you know, that that journey that, you know, as we were talking about at the beginning from, you know, a moderately successful, I guess, uh, screenwriter that, you know, writing cable movies and things to all of a sudden having like the titans of the sci-fi industry, yeah. you know, J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg and Bob yeah. Iger, like, you know, in your Rolodex, like how, yeah. how but but not for your writing, like how how strange, yeah. how strange was that experience, yeah. I guess, of just feeling like you've made it in Hollywood. Yeah, no, it was it was ridiculous. I mean, I remember one particular story hearing about, you know, I mean, the, the way that Spielberg came to try the ice cream for the first time wasn't through Bob Iger. It was through J.J. Abrams. And we had learned that J.J. had invited Spielberg over to his office to screen footage from episode seven. This was a year before the movie came out, wow. that they had early footage. And he had brought Spielberg over to share the footage with him. And in sharing the footage with him, he um, he shared the Ample Hills ice cream. So you have these two guys sitting there eating uh, our ice cream while watching footage from Star Wars. Uh, I mean, I would have given my left arm to, to have their audience, you know, right. for one of my scripts. It was pretty exciting uh, to, to do it with the ice cream, you know. But, yeah, um, yeah it, it, it really... It really was. I mean, I, I kept thinking maybe I would slip a screenplay into you know, a box of ice cream. I never did that, but, you know, it was always on my mind. Yeah. Oh, that's so wild. I, I wonder, like, if you guys have thought about just sort of what that secret sauce is, so to speak. Like, you know, thinking of everyone from Bob Iger and Oprah down to, you know, just a guy like me from Boston. <laughs> like, you know, you guys are on my radar and just like the people that know your flavors, they just they love it. Like. What do you think it was that that attracted everybody to your ice cream? Uh, I mean, I think that, it, you know, it's all of it together. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we made really good ice cream. I think that, you know, we used the best possible ingredients. But a lot of people are making really good ice cream and a lot of people are using the best possible ingredients. I, I really do think it comes back to the whole experience of the flavors and the stories that we're telling and the connections to something greater than that mass of milk, cream, sugar, and eggs. I mean, yeah. it's, it's this sort of connection. Um, you know, we weren't making charcoal ice cream or saffron or goat cheese ice cream. We were making ice cream that was aimed at kids and kids inside of adults, and, yeah. and really mostly kids inside of adults. And so if, if you try the ooey gooey, or the munchies, or the snap mile pop, and, and it connects you back to something uh, when you were seven, I mean, again, it's another movie reference, but, you know, Ratatouille, at the end of Ratatouille, mm. hopefully it's not a spoiler for too many people at this point, <laughs> you know, but the evil critic eats the Ratatouille, and yeah. immediately he's seven years old again in his mom's kitchen, 
And it's that power, uh, I think, that uh, food has, and especially mm-hmm. ice cream and its role in American popular culture and, and our history, that it can connect us to that time. And I, I just think that we managed to do that with the way the shops felt, the mm-hmm. way they looked, uh, the stories we told around the flavors of ice cream and the quality of the ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Just, you know, there is... I don't want to say cultish because I feel like that's going a bit too far, but there is a devotion to your brand. And I know like, even just for me, I want to share this anecdote with you because it's like, it's bizarre when I think about it, but it, it's still just, it fits in with everything you're saying. Like, you know, I had been eating your ice cream for four or five years and I had a work trip to St. Louis and I was like, Oh, St. Louis is the home of ooey gooey butter cake. Like, I've got to, I've got to find out like where this thing originated. Cause just cause like, I love that ice cream flavor and literally like Googled, like, where's the best ooey gooey. And like, I had a shoot that was three blocks from this coffee shop that had it and went in there and was like, all right, give me like four pieces of it. And like, took it home and was like sharing it with families. And it's just like, I, I can't imagine, you know, another time in my life where, you know, a flavor of Ben and Jerry's or something where I'm like, oh, they used you know, this ingredient in it, like, I've got to go seek that out when I'm in the, like, it's just, it's interesting, just sort of like the effect that has that it inspired me to be more curious, I guess, and to learn about, you know, things beyond just, oh, that was an enjoyable scoop of ice cream. Let me go, you know, live the rest of my day. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great story. And, and it's just, um, you know, I mean, Ben and Jerry's was a huge inspiration to us. Yeah, you just sure. mentioned them. I just like you know they sort of were doing that uh, in, in in a small way with the the stories and the the inspiration, and I, I I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. I guess you know Cherry Garcia. What is what does that come from? Oh, oh, the Grateful Dead. Let yeah. me let me buy their record. Yeah. You know, it just it leads you down this whole. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. Exactly. Um, yeah, because it's just cherry ice cream at the end of the day. Yeah, so, right. you know, somebody else can make uh, a cherry ice cream and call it cherry ice cream, right? Or chocolate covered cherry ice cream. But calling it Cherry Garcia is telling a story that's connecting it to something uh, greater and, and richer. In a crass way, you could just say it's all marketing. But, right. you know, it's really, you know, it's really about storytelling and connecting to people. Yeah, it's, it's it, and it is in the details of everything that yeah. we have done and, and thought about and planned for. And we spent a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what it would be and how it feels. So it is specific, too. It's not just, you know, a concept or a, yeah. a marketing idea. It's interesting, too. I'm just thinking about sort of experiences I've had in your shops. And one that comes to mind where sort of like I did feel like I missed out on some of that was I had gone to Astoria and it was on a day where it was just like insanely busy. And maybe they're all like this. I don't know. But like the line kind of wrapped around the entire shop. And, you know, there were like paper menus, I guess, maybe that people were passing around and you could sort of get a sense of, you know, the flavors from that. But I missed the experience of like standing at the glass case and reading the flavors and looking in at, you know, the colors of them and seeing the artwork on each tag. Like there was something that just sort of the rush of it, of feeling like, okay, you know, there's a hundred people behind me. I don't have time to sample four things. Like I've got to just, I got to make my decision and get out. And like, I felt like something was missing in that time. Whereas, you know, go. Yeah, like going to Vanderbilt on an afternoon and there's one other family in there and you can kind of meander and, you know, can I try that one? That one's new. You know, like it's 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 interesting just as you say, though, how those details matter. Yeah. Of course, when that, you know, one or other family are in there and and it's nice for you guys. It's not paying the bill. (laughs) That's true. So you need you need those crowds of people standing in line, um, even though it's not as uh wonderful for the people standing in the line yeah. Yeah. So that's why we but that's why we well yeah. it's also why we redesigned yeah. you know some of the shots to make yeah. sure that we had more real estate for people because we realized that that was part of the experience you know people were spending time looking at the flavors and taking their the time communal experience exactly yeah. and, and that was all part of it it was how do we move the line you know fast enough to not anger the people behind us and obviously make enough money but do it in a way that's going to allow for you know each each individual group to really 
you know, get an experience in front of the dipping cabinet and, you know, interact with that employee that was um, really great and trying to give you your favorite flavor that you've ever had. Yeah. I, I feel like another thing that worked really well that just sort of it made me more curious about your brand and made it, you know, like this this kind of checklist or bingo card was that like every location had a unique flavor in it that was that was specific to that one location and you couldn't get anywhere else, which like, again, I loved as a fan. I wonder just like as the creators of this, as when you get to your, you know, eighth or 10th shop, like how how daunting was that task to say, OK, we've got to come up with another flavor that's got to be specific to this location that's, you know, four miles from our other shop. Like, you know, right. how, how was that process, I guess, of just creating shop-specific flavors? So much fun. I think that was one of the most fun experiences for us. And, you know, we, we kind of tailored them differently depending on, you know, where it was and, you know, what we wanted to do. Like, for example, in Astoria, we involved the public and, you know, our fans in helping us name that flavor. We had an idea of what we wanted to create. Um, we didn't have an idea necessarily of what we wanted to call it for our Essex shop, Essex Street shop. That was another one that we kind of, you know, in, involved, um, you know, people in, in helping us name and create. Again, it's like a communal experience. And um, yeah, it never felt uh, it never felt daunting, really. It was always exciting to, yeah. because there's always research that you can do. And some, sometimes uh you know, it was as simple as, you know, in Chelsea, the Chelsea shop just gave way to the idea of Chelsea Morning, which is the Joni Mitchell song, and, and doing a, an ode to that and the experience of uh, the history of that neighborhood and the arts there. You know, but other places are more um, specific around the history of, of a neighborhood. I mean, the the Spruce Goose, which was, oh, you right. know, a flavor that we were developing for a shop in Long Beach, California, around Howard Hughes and his airplane, the Spruce Goose, and, you know, his love of um, banana ice cream and um, almonds, I think, or <laughs> wow. pecans. pecans, I can't remember, yeah. But, so you know, there was always an opportunity uh, to us, you know, to do something different. Stories are endless. You just find different ways to tell them with ice cream. Flavors. Right. Well, and, and just that idea of, like, there's a whole history project. <laughs> like, it's not just, mm -hmm. you know, it's Long Beach will, you know, put something beachy in it. It's like, well, Howard Hughes and aviation and what did he like? You know, right. there's 10 layers yeah. to that, which is, is so interesting. I'm curious, just, you know, I want to talk about the Disney shop in a minute because that was sort of my introduction to you guys, the one at the boardwalk. But as we're talking about custom flavors, there was going to be a second Disney location at Disney Springs that ended up, you know, going away. Do you know, did you have a sense of what the custom flavor for that shop would have been had it opened? No, we hadn't, we hadn't gotten to that place yet. I mean, we usually work on that custom flavor a, a month or two out from yeah. a shop opening. You know, we sort of, we allow the shop to, to come into shape visually. It was going to be something related, you know, Disney Springs itself is a whole uh, kind of fabricated narrative, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, it's a, the way that they've told the story of this hundred year old town that sprung up called Disney Springs and it grew out from there. And so we were going to try to do something related to that faux history of that town, but we hadn't hit upon it, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was just one of those curiosity things, but so sort of going, yeah. going back in time, you know, you had this location at Disney's boardwalk, which was that, that was the first one sort of outside of the tri-state area, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, and direct the relationship with Bob Iger, yeah, and and him wanting to get Ample Hill somewhere on Disney property. Yeah. And that was just a great first step. Yeah, and that was sort of how I got introduced to you and literally stayed at the boardwalk with my family. And, you know, there was there was an employee out front, like, handing out samples to people walking by, and we're like, oh, what's this? And then literally, like, we started planning vacations around, like, you know, what, where can we stay so that we're, you know, once, like, the Skyliner opened and you could take that to the backside of Epcot there and walk over to the boardwalk. It was like, okay, those hotels are in contention because we know we're going to want Ample Hills, you know, twice that week or whatever. Um, but, like, the process of sort of designing that shop, you know, like, Disney sort of famously has these Imagineers that, you know, think about every little detail and, like, how... How involved were you guys in the design of that shop and, and sort of the execution of it? We're 
were pretty involved in that one. They actually came to New York and they stood um, online at Vanderbilt and kind of counted the number of people coming in to try and figure out, you know, how many, you know, if they wanted to offer, you know, two separate dipping cabinets, which, you know, you know that there was, you know, there's 24 flavors on one side of the Disney shop and then another 24 flavors on the other side yeah. um, because they saw how fast that we were, you know, moving the line. So they came to us to, to do some of that kind of physical research. And then we worked with them pretty closely on how things were going to be designed. Now, it was Disney, so everything had to be, you know, uh, very foolproof, where our murals were hand-painted in every single shop. They created wallpaper, mm. you know, um, where <laughs> where our, you know, uh, chalkboards or chalkboards, they created a digital chalkboard. So it was a little Disney-fied. Yeah, and it wasn't, you know, some of the things we certainly wouldn't have done, but, uh, you know, they had to also make things, you know, absolutely unbreakable yeah. and, un, um, you know, unmovable. I mean, just it's just so interesting. I mean, even pictures on the wall, you know, are, you know, sort of glued down as opposed to, you know, you know we would yeah. just hang a picture on right. a wall, right? Because Which, you know, and our animal shop would fall every Yeah, day, exactly. You know? So now we, you know, we, we, we learned some things from them. But so we definitely worked with their Imagineers. And it was it was really exciting and fun. And, we, you know, we worked with our designer who had designed all of our other shops as well. And she would meet with them. And, and so, I, you know, I think it was, uh, you know, it was definitely a lot of our um, insight and ideas into that shop. But most certainly not a hundred percent. The Disney Springs store, had it happened, was going to be completely owned and operated by Ample Hills, and and would have been uh, completely our shop. You know, yeah. Is it too bad that it, it didn't happen? Yeah. No, that was we were excited for it, and you know, I I wish uh, I wish it had come into fruition. Uh, I, I wonder too, just sort of the the difference between like when you're in a neighborhood in New York and there's other you know, real world businesses and people walk their dogs and, you know, whatever there, there's, there's trash bags. Like, you know, your, your designs fit into a very real place. Like the one at the boardwalk is this sort of fantasy place and every detail about it, the the whole boardwalk is kind of this, this idealized version of reality. I wonder just sort of if there were challenges sort of working in that realm beyond, you, you talked about sort of the the uh the destruction level of it that you know everything had to be kind of bulletproof but like were there other aesthetic considerations i guess of just sort of how a shop is different in the disney bubble versus in the real world yeah i mean i i i definitely hear what you're saying i mean the whole boardwalk is designed to be sort of a a representation of a jersey boardwalk right or a tony island that kind of thing we leaned into that with the, you know, in particular, say, with the flavor of ice cream, Sally sells seashells, you know, it's sort of a combination of Florida and the orange groves because it's an orange marshmallow ice cream, but with the seashells, uh, even though Orlando is nowhere near the, the sea, we were, you know, aiming it at the boardwalk kind of concept. So, I mean, there's definitely an effort to sort of play within the world that you're in and and you know there's all, always ways to be creative within that world and it's the same with screenwriting i mean when i was writing monster movies there were rules strict strict rules for you know somebody had to die on page eight somebody had to get eaten on page 15 i mean there were there were complete and strong rules that you would think would play counter to the idea of creativity and inspiration but sometimes that structure can help you funnel your creative energy into how you can make the death on page eight to be different and unique in your own than somebody else. So yeah. I just, I think we went with that kind of strategy uh, within the structures of, of, of how they dealt with it. Yeah. It sounds like it. And, and it sounds like Disney Springs would have been a step in that direction as well. Um, I, I want to get back to sort of, you know, the, this, this past year and, you know, sort of going through the, the bankruptcy and, and ultimately, you know, selling the business and, and losing control of it. Going through, you know, just this past spring and, and early part of the summer, as you say, where it's literally your family, you know, selling ice cream package to go and things like you guys put your heart and soul into this. Like, what did you hope the outcome was going to be or what did you imagine, you know, the, the options would have been going through this bankruptcy? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I I guess 
Yeah, we we really have put our heart and soul or had put our heart and soul and our family's heart and soul in the business. And through the bankruptcy, I think we were really hoping that we were going to find a buyer that would work with us, that would help us, you know, with the business aspect of the of Ample Hills and help us, you know, move it into a better place financially but that we would continue to be the heart and soul of the brand and that we would continue to create and um, and ideate and work together because that's our nature. Yeah. Like we were looking for partners. I mean, we, we hired people, you know, to give us financial advice and we hired various roles as Ample Health. We were hoping that those people knew more than us and that would help spearhead this this business financially with us because um, we knew what we did well. Yeah, I think, I mean, we just, we wanted to be there. We wanted, you know, we had high hopes when we entered bankruptcy that um, because, you know, there had been no coronavirus. I think from the outside, everybody would have been shocked that Ample Hills was going into bankruptcy. I mean, you know, if you go into the shops, they're always crowded. The shops were making money. The business was sound, except for the fact that we built this factory that was, you know, uh, over budget and cost too much to to run. And so we really believed that we could find a strategic buyer and partner that would uh, be the financial guardrails of the company, um, but work with us on the vision and uh, the creativity going forward. And uh, you know, we had a lot of those conversations. But they just um, they just started to peter out as uh, the coronavirus really took hold, and people found it harder and harder to see a path back to profitability with the coronavirus. You know, the the amount of um, money and the backstop that you had to put into the business to sort of um, stabilize it, I think, was just too great. And what you ended up with instead were people looking for a bargain, a basement bargain price, to, you know, to, to pick something up. And unfortunately, I think that's what, you know, ended up happening with the bonkers. How, uh, how difficult was that to, to come to terms with? We're still coming to terms with it. Yeah. I think, you know, I mean, um, we, you know, we just keep talking about Ample Hills in this, even in this interview and, and, you know, talking about it as if it's ours and we, we sort of say we and, and us, and you know, we have to remind ourselves that it's not we and us; it's them and they yeah. now. And I mean, so it, it's it's so weird and and hard. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it just it just hurts. I mean, it's not it's not a you know, it wasn't a business. Obviously, it was yeah. a business. Obviously, so we were we were trying to make money, but it's just yeah. I mean, it's our you know, our kids had all their birthday parties there for years and years. I mean, uh, their friends, and it's just. That's um, yeah. It was our it was our uh, life and our livelihood, and um, we had never intended to you know to leave it. It's just you know we could not in good faith find a creative path forward with uh, the new ownership. I just don't you know there was just no way to to marry those uh, ideas and, and concepts and work together. Mm -hmm. We would have been fighting uh, against river. Uh, yeah. And, and it's a shame. I mean, I, I saw you guys had posted on Instagram sort of when that had all gone down and, and the sale was finalized and announcing that, that you weren't going to be involved with the business anymore. And my first reaction, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, we've got to buy the cookbook. And and we ordered it like used on Amazon and it came and she started now. We've had an ice cream maker for 10 years that we got as a wedding present and hadn't used much. And now she's like, oh, let's make some ice cream. And she's made a couple of your recipes now. But to me, it was just oh. like, it was like, I don't know, like, you know, what this new ownership is going to be like and just the, the creativity and the spirit. And again, like going, you know, starting at, at the boardwalk with my kids. And then, you know, when we go to New York and going to Vanderbilt or, you know, just that was a part of their childhood, too, even though we're not New Yorkers. My, my wife grew up on Long Island, but like I'm not. And, uh, you know, it, it was just something that that I felt the need to preserve in a way. And so I, I can only imagine, I guess, you know, that that's me as somebody who's had your ice cream, you know, two dozen times or something in his life. Like I can only imagine what you guys are going through. 
And I guess it it leads me to my sort of last question of just sort of I've been really impressed with this podcast that you launched as the ice cream churns and just sort of your honesty and openness with with the highs and the lows of this business and, and really sort of talking about, you know, the lessons learned along along each step. What was it that made you want to open up in that way and, and want to share your story with everybody? You know, I think the the reason is that we really just didn't feel like we had that opportunity. I mean, a, a, as long and slow as the bankruptcy process was, the actual end of us not being at Ample Hills yeah. was so sudden, was so fast and raw, and 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 such an incredible break that we hadn't really had ourselves a chance to sort of process it, and we really felt like telling our story and getting our story out there might be helpful to people. I mean, it, it, it is, of course, you know, the story of, um, you know, it's, it's the rise and fall uh, and, and then trying to start over. And I, and I think that it's something hopefully that a lot of people can relate to. I mean, people often say like, I don't know, what is it? Six, seven, eight, eight out of 10 businesses fail within the first five years. You know, and we went to 10 years before, you know, going into bankruptcy. And, you know, people always say like, oh, it's the second business that works, not the first, you know, and, and all of these things. And, and so I think for us to be able to go out there and sort of honestly talk about the mistakes that we made, and we made a lot of them, um, and the things that we did well and that we got right uh, from the storytelling and the branding might be helpful to to other people that are either going through the same thing or thinking about starting a business. I mean, that's, that was really sort of our goal and our hope and, and, and to have that then lead into, you know, for us, what's next. I mean, we, you know, our, our, our goal, you know, a year from now is not to, to be podcasters, you know, and, and keep doing our show necessarily. I mean, yeah. that would be nice, but you know, our goal is to get back in there and, and, and make ice cream again and, and connect with people but to do it from a, a, a place that's a little more grounded and, and, you know, back to our roots, if you will. Yeah. Um, how does that, like, I, I just, I, I think of sort of what Conan O'Brien went through of, you know, leaving NBC and sort of having, you know, NBC owned all of his assets at that point. So like all these recurring bits, like he could get a new show and, and had this new show on TBS but he didn't have access to any of his intellectual property. Like I just, uh, for you mm-hmm. guys too, just you've, you've built these followings and, you know, a guy like me that's going to St. Louis and seeking out an ingredient in your ice cream. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that must be, that must be strange too, I guess that like, I could understand the need to want to get back out there, but to not go there with, with your signature stuff is. Yeah. Well, we can't call it ample Hills, but I mean, you know, the, you know, over the course of 10 years, you know, I made two or 300 flavors of ice cream. The actual making up of flavors of ice cream, honestly, that that, that we find is the easy part. Hmm. It's the storytelling around the ice cream. It's the branding. It's the look, the feel. That's the daunting part. I mean, that's what we're sitting doing right now. What do we call this new um, ice cream company? What kind of story do we want to tell? I mean, that's part of the, as the Ice Cream Churns podcast is sort of helping us work through. The actual intellectual property of the ice cream flavors, I mean, nobody controls the, you know, we we publish those those recipes in the cookbooks. They're out there for the public. So it's not like um, it's hard to, to make uh, ice cream itself. It's, I think what's hard is to package 24 flavors together as a story and a narrative and, and, and build the community uh, uh, again, which we think we can, you know, which we think we can do. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm, I'm eager to see what, what comes out on the other side because yeah, I'm a big fan <laughs> of your work and uh, have Thank enjoyed you. your ice cream. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope to be able to continue to enjoy whatever's next because, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's exciting to to know that there might be something on the other side of this. Definitely, there will be. There will be. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. All right, there we go. Brian Smith and Jackie Cuscuna. That was a tough one. It's sad, you know, just uh, hearing their story and knowing that they worked so hard at something and it all went away very quickly. And Apple Hills is. It's very meaningful to me. I'm sure you picked up on that in the interview, but uh, I discovered them five years ago or so, and uh, 
I'm going to miss Brian and Jackie's touch on that brand, but I hope that uh, I hope that whatever they do next is equally awesome. As the Ice Cream Churns is on all major podcast platforms. Again, if you want a deeper dive into their story, I highly recommend checking that out. It's uh, it's brutal and honest, and uh, I think if you're thinking about going into business, there's a lot to learn there. And I think it's just uh, it's a fascinating story. And they are great storytellers, right? That's, <laughs> that's their thing. All right, thank you for joining me today. Make sure you subscribe. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. Let me tell you a little bit about next Monday. Lang Fisher is going to be here. She's one of the co-creators of Never Have I Ever on Netflix. If you haven't seen that show yet, it is hilarious. It's a teen comedy about a South Asian Indian American girl living in the San Fernando Valley and uh, growing up as a high schooler. But uh, it's not just a regular teen comedy. There's a lot of good like teen comedy stuff in there, but it's deep and it's heartfelt and you're going to cry at times and you're going to think about life at times. And uh, we had a really great talk. It's a show that I have fallen in love with during this quarantine time. And I was really excited to talk to Lang and just sort of learn what made her uh, create this show and the writing process. She co-created it with Mindy Kaling. And uh, yeah, it's a fun talk. So come back Monday. Hit subscribe and you'll get it in your feed before anyone else. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Let me know what you guys are thinking. Let me know what you're thinking of the show. I love hearing from you guys. And uh, I'll talk to you on Monday. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay safe. 